Good morning, everyone. Let's begin lesson eight on our study on the doctrine of Christ. This has been good. Hasn't this been good? Yeah, I've been very helpful. I was just thinking, man, theology proper, doctrine of God is obviously so very important. Uh, our doctrine of man is also very important. Anthropology, um, theological anthropology, doctrine of Christ too. And these things are all, you can see how they're all related. You know, our understanding of who God is from all eternity, our understanding of who man is, and our understanding of who Christ is are all interrelated. That's been coming out consistently in this study. Wonderful stuff. Let's uh, move through Lesson 8. It's the second part of this chapter entitled, Post-Chalcedonian Clarifications Regarding Christ. Let's open an order of prayer and then we'll begin. Father in Heaven, we thank You for this beautiful morning. We thank You for the rain that You've provided for us. Uh, we thank You for the blessing of rest, common rest, O oh Lord, the kind that we enjoy um, throughout the week, each night as we sleep, but especially for the special rest of the Lord's Day where we are able to fix our minds and hearts upon You, um, especially so. And so I ask that You would help us to do that. Help us to do that in the Sunday school hour during morning and afternoon worship. I pray that You would bless Your congregation as she assembles. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer. Amen. This chapter presents four post-Chalcedonian developments to round out Christological orthodoxy. So some wonderful work was done at Chalcedon. Uh, that Chalcedonian definition is very helpful. It's very clear in terms of uh, helping us to understand who Christ is in His, in his nature, in His person. Um, but from Chalcedon onward, the church continued to refine its way of speaking about Christ. And that's what we're now considering last week. In Lesson 7, we considered the in-hypostatic union. Uh, this is the idea that um, the person of Christ is the eternal Son and always has been. Um, there was not a person associated with Christ's human nature that was either adopted or kicked out, but was, it was always Christ. The, the, excuse me, it was always the eternal Son of God. Uh, so that the human nature of Christ was never really without a person, but rather the person of the Son was always the person of Christ. So we considered that last week. Hopefully I didn't just confuse everything that was said last week with that little summary statement. And then we also considered the doctrine of the communicatio idiomatum, which helps us to understand that the two natures, the divine and the human nature, find their connection point, find their unity, not in the natures, but in the person. In my opinion, that's just a marvelously helpful uh, concept. I hope that it was helpful for you. Uh, when we try to think of the two natures finding their connection in one another, we end up with lots of trouble because then it's hard for us to comprehend how this could be true without there being change in God and even change in the human nature of Christ so that you end up with something other than God or a true human. But this doctrine of the communicatio idiomatum helps us to see that no, these natures remain full and intact, the divine nature as it's always been, the human nature as it has always been, and yet they find their, con their connection in the person of Christ 
And so it is the divine son who is the person who acts through these two natures, the divine and the human. Um, I, I think this is very helpful. Also, it helps us to understand how it could be that the scriptures talk in the way that they do regarding Christ, that he is, on the one hand, omniscient. On the other hand, he's learning. Uh, on the one hand, uh, he is God who cannot suffer or die, and yet in Christ we see that he suffers and ultimately dies. Uh, it's the person of the Son doing all of these things as the acting subject, but doing them according to these two natures. Uh, so a very helpful doctrine indeed, uh, communicatio idiomatum. Today we're going to talk about the doctrine of the extra and then we're going to talk about diotheletism, these two things, which are also fascinating and helpful. I've, I've grown up hearing about the doctrine of the extra in these terms, the extra Calvinisticum. Has anybody heard it called that before? So this doctrine, as I've learned it, has been especially identified with John Calvin. And some, I think, imagine that he invented it in, in his lifetime, you know, um, but what we'll learn here is that this doctrine has actually been present from the earliest days of the church. And so let us learn about what it is. Uh, there's a reason, in other words, why Wellam is calling this doctrine the doctrine of the extra and not the extra Calvinisticum. I think he's wanting to uh, do away with these misconceptions about its being uniquely attributed to John Calvin. So what is it? Uh, here is the doctrine of the extra. In the Incarnation... Jesus not only retained His divine attributes, He also continued to exercise them as the Trinitarian Son. There's a typo there in your outline, not at, but as the Trinitarian Son. So, the Son of God did not lay aside His divine attributes when He became incarnate. And beyond that, we should say that the Eternal Son also continued to exercise these divine attributes as the Trinitarian Son, even during and after, well, not after, but even during uh, the incarnation. I think this is uh, very helpful. Wellam explains, the Son continues to live a divine life outside, or extra, His human nature. The Son continues to live a divine life outside His human nature. Uh, B, the Son lived with human limitations as our covenant head, yet He continues to sustain the universe by His divine power. So the person of the Son did in fact live with human limitations, according to which nature, obviously His human nature, He took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. So the Son did assume a true human nature and therefore experienced all of the limitations, all of the sufferings, even the temptations that we encounter. He experienced them all, the eternal Son of God did, according to His human nature. And yet, He did not cease to be what He always was as the Divine Son. He lost none of, He did not set aside any of those attributes. He did lay aside the glory of, of God when He became incarnate. Um, not in heaven and, and not according to His divine nature as it is in heaven, but in His incarnation. And He continued to uphold the universe by the, by the word of His power. Uh, that is what Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3 speak to. I noticed I actually have it um, uh, listed out or um, cited here twice in this outline. 
um, but I'll read them now. Colossians 1.17, And He, that is to say Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This passage is saying that Jesus is the Creator of all things seen and unseen. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Not according to His human nature, because He became incarnate in time. But how might we say that Jesus Christ created everything and upholds everything? Uh, Well, as He is considered according to His divine nature as the person of the Son. Hebrews 1.3 speaks in a similar way. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So then, in the Incarnation, the Son, the Eternal Son of God, lives His life totally in the flesh and totally outside the flesh. That's Wellam quoting Crisp. Do you understand what the, de- the doctrine of the extra is then? Um, there, there's a sense in which we, we, we say, yes, the Son became incarnate, but that does not mean that the, the human nature of the Son um, then encapsulated the divine nature so as to cause it to have limitations. That would mean change in God. Um, so if we consider Christ according to His human nature, the human nature did not limit the divine nature. The divine nature is limitless. Christ, considered according to His divine nature, is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. All these omnis that belong to God belong to the Son of God from all eternity and no change was ever brought about there. So, the human nature did not limit the divine nature. If we think about the Son as He has always been in heaven, we might speak in this way. When Christ become, became, excuse me, when the Son became incarnate, it's not as if something changed in the heavenly realm to where the Son all of a sudden possessed less glory there, as if the angels took notice of it. You know, hey, look. All of a sudden, the sun is less glorious here, or the sun is missing. <laughs> you know, where did he go? I'm speaking of, of the of God in the heavenly realm. Now, there was no change in God in the heavenly realm when Christ became incarnate. Uh, that's what the doctrine of the extra is trying to get us to un- understand. I think, and it's a very helpful doctrine. Uh, let's continue considering it. Um, Wellam says, to make sense of the extra, we must link it to the other Christological truths we have discussed in this book already. For example, the extra builds on the truth that the person of the Son is the subject of both natures and acts through both natures. That's the doctrine of in hypostasia that we considered uh, last week. So it's the person of the Son who is the subject, the acting subject, who acts through both natures. B, in addition, the extra assumes that Christ's two natures retain their integrity and that what is true of the natures is true of the person. So there's no violation done to the human nature nor to the divine nature in the incarnation, um, but they remain as they have always been, the divine nature for all eternity, and the human nature as it came from God at the time of creation. No no damage is done to them but they're so united in the person that what might be said of the one nature, the, the, um, 
excuse me, I lost my place. Uh, what is true of the natures is true of the person. That's the doctrine of the communicatio, which we've considered already. Thus, when the Son assumed a human nature, not only did He continue to share with the Father and the Spirit the divine nature and, the, and a divine life, but now He was able to live and experience a human life. Uh, that is what happened in the Incarnation. The person of the Son was able to live and experience a human life. Uh, Jesus was truly God with us. The Incarnation did not result in a change in the divine nature and triune agency. Hence the texts that teach that the, incarnation, the Incarnate Son from the Father and by the Spirit continues to sustain the universe and here are those texts stated again. I didn't realize that they appeared twice in the outline. But here they're stated more fully. I'll read them again. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It's a marvelous statement here about Christ being before all creation through this concept of the eternal processions of the persons within the triune God, the Father eternally begetting the Son, and the Father and Son eternally begetting the Spirit. But creation happened through Christ, and He even sustains it, not according to His human nature, but according to His divine nature. Hebrews 1, 1-3 stated um, in fuller context here, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So the Father created the world through the Son. And you can see that in the Genesis account as we look back into it with this uh, fuller revelation that that God created the world by speaking. So it's through His Word that He creates and as His Spirit works. And I continue to quote Hebrews 1, And He, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Uh, so this activity of the Son did not cease when the Son became incarnate. He became what He was not without ceasing to be what He always was. That's how I've heard it put before. I don't know who said that first, or even if I'm stating it exactly as it was originally stated, but I think it's helpful. Uh, the eternal Son of God became what He was not in the Incarnation without ceasing to be what He always was. I think that's a helpful way to state this doctrine of the extra. He became what He was not. He became incarnate. But we have to be careful with that language of becoming, lest we do damage to our doctrine of theology proper. And that's what the second part of that phrase clarifies. Without ceasing to be what He always was. You understand? Uh, so that's what happened in the Incarnation. Throughout church history, the extra has been consistently affirmed. Wellam says on page 120, he cites Cyril uh, of Alexandria, <clears throat> He mentions Thomas Aquinas. He also mentions John Calvin. I meant to bring Calvin's Institutes with me today just to read this portion that um, Wellam cited in brief. I did want to read the quote from Cyril of Alexandria on page 120. 
I think it is helpful to see that this doctrine was present even in the very early days of the church. Uh, Cyril says, When seen as a babe and wrapped in swaddling cloths, even when still in the bosom of the virgin who bore him, he, that is to say the only begotten word of God, filled all creation as God. Isn't that marvelous to consider? So the son was simultaneously both in the womb of the virgin Mary and then after his birth in her arms. And yet he, the person of the son, simultaneously filled all creation as God, and I continue to quote, was enthroned with him who begot him. For the divine cannot be numbered or measured and does not admit of circumscription. The divine cannot have boundaries, in other words. So confessing the word to be hypostatically united, we worship one Son and Lord Jesus Christ, neither putting apart and dividing man and God as joined with each other by union of dignity and authority, for this would be an empty phrase and no more, nor speaking of the word of God separately as Christ, and then separately of him who was of a woman as another Christ, but knowing only one Christ, the word of God, the Father, with his own flesh. Um, a bit of this is hard to understand given the old, old language, but... What Cyril is noting is that, um, well, it's what we've been saying this entire time. Because of the union of the two natures and the person of the Son, we may speak of Christ in these two, these two ways. He has limitations and he does not have limitations all at once. Um, this is the doctrine of the extra. Given the extra, I continue to, to quote Wellam now. Uh, the incarnation is best placed under the heading of crypsis and not kenosis, that is, veiling versus emptying or losing. Why? The incarnation was the veiling of the Son's deity, not its subtraction or loss. Yet for our salvation, the Son chose to subject Himself to ignorance, not of necessity as with us, but in order to redeem us. I think that's a wonderful statement here. He says that we ought to place the incarnation under the heading of crypsis and not kenosis. Uh, crypsis means veiling, kenosis means emptying or losing. So when we think of the, the incarnation, we ought to think of it in the terms of, of a veiling, not a, an emptying or a losing in, in a strict sense. Um, yes, it is true that that Philippians passage, what we cons- which we considered earlier, speaks of Christ as having emptied himself, the son emptied himself, but then it explains what is meant by it. He emptied himself by, by taking to himself a human nature. So it was not an emptying of himself as it pertains to his divine nature or attributes, but rather the laying aside of his glory and rights as God. You get the difference here. Um, and yet so many in the modern church have taken uh, that passage to mean that when the Son became incarnate, He laid aside or emptied Himself of divinity in some respect. Not fully, but uh, His nature or His attributes were changed is the thought. And Wellam is very right to say that's not the proper way to think about this. 
Uh, this is not an emptying or loss of the divine nature or the divine attributes. This is rather a veiling of, of God's glory. That is what was set to the side when, when the Son became incarnate. The glory of God was set to the side. The, the rights that the Son possessed uh, to glory and honor was set to the, to the side. He, he humbled himself and came in the form of man, you see. A very important point there. So alongside in hypostasia and communicatio, the extra is a concept required to make sense of all the scriptural data and thus to, is faithful to Orthodox Christology. That's how Wellam concludes that section. And I think it's a great conclusion. You, you, you understand what we do. When we do theology, um, we are handling the scriptures and we are wrestling with the question, how do we talk about this <laughs> in a way where we can respect the totality of what the scriptures say? Earlier it was said that theology is faith seeking understanding. Theology is faith seeking understanding. When you're a brand new Christian, by faith you will say, I trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust in Him for many reasons, one of them being that He is both God and man and is our Redeemer. You, you'll say that as a brand new believer, but as a brand new believer, do you understand this necessarily? <laughs> I think a lot of you would admit, no. Um, in fact, I've been confused about this stuff for a long time, but, but this language is sure helpful. So when we do theology, it's faith, genuine faith, seeking understanding. It's, it's faith coming into a more mature phase, if you will. And so these, these terms, like the in-hypostatic union and the communicatio idiomatum and the extra, and, and all of these terms that we're considering, though they're not found in Scripture, they are helpful for us to describe what is said in Scripture with clarity and with precision. And so I do thank those who've gone before us for these uh, wonderful terms not unique to Calvin, but present in the church long before him. That's the doctrine of the extra. Let's talk about diothelitism now before we run out of time. The fourth post-Chalcedonian development that clarifies Catholic or universal Christology is the upholding of two wills in Christ settled at the Third Council of Constantinople in 681. There the church rejected monothelitism, this idea that Christ has one will, and affirmed diothelitism, which affirms that Christ has two wills, one divine and one human. I do love these terms. Um, they're very helpful. And you've noticed a theme throughout this study these doctrines have been clearly stated in church history in response to error. Have you noticed that theme? And you've probably found the same to be true yourself, that you have been forced to clarify your thinking on certain subjects when pressed with certain errors, perhaps. Errors that are brought to you by others or errors that you have been tempted to believe. It's interesting how that works, how it's hard to even see these things until they're contrasted with some erroneous thought. And such is the case with diothelitism. The church was um, brought to this point of needing to confess it 
when faced with the era of monothelitism, the idea that Christ has one will. Why did the church think the will debate was important? This is fascinating. Uh, first, two wills are necessary to maintain Christ's full humanity over against Apollinarianism and Monophysitism, which we considered before. Why? Both of these uh, false views identified will with person, hence the affirmation of one will, and both continued the problems of word-flesh Christologies. Um, this is a great observation here. If we identify will with person, if we identify the idea of, of will with person, to say that those are the same thing or that they, they always go, that they go together, how many wills will we say that Christ has? We would say one because we have confessed that in Christ there is not two persons but one person. So if we tightly link the concept of person and will so that the will is something that the person has, it's associated with the person and not the nature, then we're going to confess one will in Christ. But it doesn't make sense of everything that the Scriptures reveal to us concerning Jesus. I'll continue, and I hope this will become clear. Also, in locating will in person and not in nature, this meant that Christ's one will is a divine one. There's a typo in the outline there as well. If we were to locate will in person and not in nature, as we will eventually do, this meant that Christ's one will is a divine one. Christ's human nature, if this were true, does not have a will, as Donald McLeod, I think that's how you pronounce his name, notes. There can be no true human nature without the ability to make human choices. What are you? Human. And what does that mean? What, what is a human? What is a human nature? Uh, human nature consists of body and soul. And within the soul, we confess that human beings have these capacities, these abilities to, to think, to feel, and to make choices. That is, to will or to, or to act upon choice. So within the human soul, we have these three faculties, the mind, the affections, and the, the will. A human nature is not complete if it does not possess or if it does not have the capacity to will. Would you agree with me? Um, some of us were raised in Arminian churches where people made an awful lot of free will, you know. And actually we agree. We have, we have free will. It's in bondage to sin now by nature, but it's, it, it's active. Every human being is not a robot. It's not a beast that acts upon instinct merely. But we all have human wills. We act upon choice. We, we decide to move towards that which we perceive to be beautiful and away from that which we perceive to be repulsive. Our, our trouble is not that we don't have a will. We do have wills. It's just that our wills are broken so that in our fallen condition and apart from Christ, we perceive that which is evil to be good and that which is good to be repulsive to us. More or less, you know? That's the problem. We all have wills. 
But back to the point of Christ, if Christ only has one will and not two, which will is it? Is it the divine or the human will? Well, if we link the idea of person and will tightly together, we would say that the only will in Jesus Christ is the divine will. Does God have a will? Yes, He doesn't will in the same way that we do. God's will is different because God is pure act. He's never in process. You, you understand. God has a will. Humans have a will. Dogs also have wills. But all three are different because they're of a different nature, you see. So humans will in this way. We perceive the world. We take things into us. We feel drawn towards or repulsed by things, and then we act upon choice. We will, in that process, God wills as pure act. God wills as the great I Am, who is not bound by time or space, who does not gain knowledge. He, he, he decrees, and that's hard for us to comprehend. But again, back to the person of Christ, you see how our doctrine of man and our doctrine of God are always coming into play here when we're talking about Christ. If Christ only has one will, and if we link the idea of will with person, then the will that is in Christ is the divine will only. And now we have a problem, because does Christ have a full human nature then? No. He's a human, kind of. He's a human who lacks a will. Can Christ then make choices to obey the Father as a human on our behalf? No. It's a big problem. That which is not assumed is not healed. Right? That which is not assumed is not redeemed. And yet Christ assumed a full human nature, really and truly. True body, reasonable soul, without anything lacking as it pertains to His faculties. Chad, you had something. Yeah. He, he gets to it. I think what we would want to say is that, um, and I think it came out in the last lesson, that when we, consider, when we consider Christ's perfect human obedience to the Father, His perfect submission to the will of the Father, we need to attribute that not to the divine nature in Him, but we need to attribute that to His anointing with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that gets a little bit at what, what you're addressing here. And I, it makes sense. I just, I just don't see like how... Because they can't... I mean, can they conflict? And if they can, to me, that's a huge problem. Well, they, they can conflict in theory. According, if we consider the, the wills as faculties, as the will as faculty. But could they conflict? In fact, no, because of God's decree to uphold the Christ by the power. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Um, and everything that was involved in the incarnation made it possible for Christ as a human being who had a free will like ours to only submit. 
to the will of the Father perfectly and to not fall. There, there was that anointing of the Holy Spirit that came upon the Messiah, the Anointed One, that upheld him. So that though if we consider the faculty of the will, we can say that he had that capacity to choose otherwise. As we consider the one who was willing, uh, namely the person of the Son who is willing through uh, the human nature, and as we consider the anointing of the Holy Spirit, then we would say, no, Christ could not fail because God was acting through him and anointing him with the Holy Spirit to uphold him. Yeah. In- um, so when we pray, <clears throat> your will be done, that never includes Jesus' human will. Well, I think we pray to Christ... Uh, the, the one person uh, according to his divinity. And we're praying for the Father's will to be done uh, when we pray. Yeah. But he still possesses two wills. Yes. Yes. Let's continue through this section. Did you have something, Lindsay? Yeah, I think it is that that event in the Garden of Gethsemane where this whole thing is most clearly seen, where according to his human nature, he's feeling that tension, he's experiencing the suffering, he's even experiencing the dread. And so there's that soul battle that is going on inwardly, and you can see there at Gethsemane that there were two wills, (laughs) because... Christ won the battle being anointed by the Holy Spirit beyond measure. He won the battle by not following his human desires, his his human desires in this moment to avoid suffering, but submitted himself purely to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. What wills are you talking about? There's two in him, the divine and the human, and and we must see that. So let's move through the rest of this section. Um, Point three here up at the top of the page. Furthermore, Chalcedon taught that Christ's human nature consisted of a body and soul, and it did not identify soul with person. Uh, We've already learned about that. It's very important. Why? The Scripture teaches that Jesus had human desires, human longings, human aversions. Uh, Also, John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So there's another text that speaks to this. These seem to require a metaphysical distinction between Jesus' will and the Father's will. All of this demands that in Christ a true human will is at work, epitomized in Gethsemane. So here's the epitome of it all. Uh, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is Matthew 26, 39. So there's a larger section there for you to read. You'll notice the dots. I've cut out large portions for the sake of time, but that's a wonderful statement. Second, diotheletism is decisive for soteriology. And I've already gotten ahead of myself a bit and have um, spoken to this. To redeem us as our covenant head, the Son must render human obedience in His life and death. As Gregory of Nazianzus has said, what is not assumed is not healed. Third, diotheletism is required for Trinitarian theology. The will is best located in God's nature entailing that what is common to all three persons is their divine nature and thus operation, including a shared will. 
Yet, given their personal distinctions, the Father shares and exercises the one divine will as the Father, and the same is true of the Son and the Spirit. Yet, if one locates the will in the persons, as monothelitism does, the problematic avowal or declaration of three wills in God follows, which runs the serious risk of surrendering the divine unity. What, what is well I'm saying here? As we wrestle with the question of where is the will situated, is it a faculty of the nature, human and divine, or is it to be situated in the person? As we wrestle with that question, we have to remember theology proper. Because when it comes to God Himself, theology proper, we say that there is one God, there is one divine nature, in whom there exists three persons or subsistences eternally. How many wills are there in God? I'm not talking about Christ right now. How many wills are there in God? One. One will in God. How many persons? Do you see that we have to kind of unhitch the idea of will from person a little bit? <laughs> um, and we have to kind of situate the whole idea of will not in person but in nature. So in the divine nature there is one will. And so we come back to Christ. Nature and will go together. And in Christ there's one person acting through two natures, the divine and the human. Therefore, how many wills are there in Christ? Two, because being able to will is, is a capacity that comes along with nature. This will become clear, I think, in just a moment. Uh, but I love how Wellam clarifies this. Like This isn't just some silly thing to argue about. Um, this is very important because it is going to have a huge impact upon our doctrine of Christ. It's going to have a huge impact upon our doctrine of salvation. What is not assumed is not healed, nauseanzas. And it's even going to impact our theology proper. It's going to, we're going to have to go back and tinker, tinker with our theology proper if we get this wrong. So these are important things to consider. Today, social Trinitarians endorse three wills in God, but they have a hard time maintaining God's unity, at least in any orthodox understanding of the unity of the divine nature. Did I get that quote right? We'll come back to it. Just scratch that for now. Wellam there makes a little side comment to say how there is a problem with theology proper in the church today, and they err here, and it's something that we can be concerned, it should be concerned about. Let's finish the lesson. I'm mindful of time. For these reasons, the church officially endorsed diothelitism in 681. Numerous people contributed to this decision, but none as important as Maximus the Confessor. He died in exile prior to the Third Council of Constantinople. And I think he makes a very important contribution here that we need to consider. Maximus made a crucial distinction between the faculty of will located in nature and concrete acts of willing located in person. This is huge. Maximus made a crucial distinction between the faculty of will located in nature and concrete acts of willing located in the person. So you are a human being. You have a body. You have a soul. You have the capacity to think, 
You have the capacity to feel. You have the capacity to will, to act upon choice. We all share that in common. But when, but when you feel, and when you think, and when you choose to act, who does it? You do it as a person. It is your person that acts. Your person is the subject that acts through your nature, through your body, ultimately, but also through your soul, your mind, will, and affections. You are a responsible person before God. You, whatever your name is, you, you act through these faculties or through these capacities that you have by virtue of your human nature. Maximus made that crucial distinction. All human beings have a faculty of of will, but the concrete acts of willing, the actual things that we do, are done by the person. All rational beings have a faculty of will, the capacity to will, and thus the ability to will. As for Christ, He has the ability to will as a human and the ability to will as God, yet it is the person of the Son who does the concrete acts of willing. And I think that's to your question, Chad. They're a bit anointed by the Spirit above measure, beyond measure. We must take that in consideration. But who is the one who who is the one doing the willing in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to the human nature? It's actually the person of the Son who's doing it. It's God as man who is submitting himself to the will of God. If that makes sense. So, theoretically, the human will was free, able to act upon choice, not constrained in any way, but just like us. Ultimately, though, could Christ fail? Could He fail to surrender Himself to the will of the Father? No, because of the person who is willing through the human nature, namely the Son. And because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which we have already discussed. By this distinction, Maximus could speak of both a person who wills and his will similarly to how we speak of a person who thinks and has the ability to think given his intellect and mind. We've kind of already touched upon that. In Christ, there is... So here it is. This really is the key, I think, to that great question that you ask. In Christ, there is one willer. Who is the one willer? The Son, who has two wills. Hence, the ability to will as a human and as God. Also, because it's it's the Son who is the acting subject of His human nature, it's the Son in and through His human nature who wills as a human, thus rendering human obedience. This taxonomy, or this classification that we've been talking about, as applied to the Trinity, results in three willers, persons, who share the same identical nature, or will, or nature, the one ability to will as God is actualized by the three persons, because the one willer does not refer to specific acts of willing. We must distinguish between the persons who will slash act through the one capacity slash ability of will. Um, that's deep stuff that I don't have the time to unpack, but I think it's a wonderful statement. Conclusion, ultimately what is at stake in each of these four extensions of Chalcedon, so all four things that we've talked about in this chapter, is whether we have a true word-man Christology that teaches Christ's full deity and full humanity 
and gives us a Redeemer who can truly redeem, reconcile, and justify us before God by an obedient life and death for us as our covenant representative and substitute. That is true. Do we have, do we have a word flesh Christ or a word man Christ? Remember that language presented earlier? There's a big difference. Did he merely just take on human flesh or did he take to himself a full and true human nature, body and soul? mind, will, and affections. We, we need a word man, Christ, if we are to be redeemed by Him truly. Uh, he needs to be all that we are in our nature, with the exception of sin. He needs to be all that we are in order to, to redeem us and to lift us up as human beings to the end for which God has designed us. You see, in order for him to be the second and true Adam, he has to be fully God and fully man. And indeed, the second person of the Trinity has assumed a full human nature in order to reconcile us to the Father. Fabulous, yes? Mysterious, hard to comprehend, I, I agree. But I think these classifications, these distinctions, um, these the, the careful distinction between things like person and nature is very, very helpful in this, and it should clear up some, some cloudy thinking. Okay, we're out of time. Any other final remarks? Uh, we'll continue on. And I believe in this book, what, where we eventually go is to just um, state the doctrine uh, clearly and, and positively, and so instead of comparing it with heresies... Um, uh, we just state the doctrine of Christ in a, in a positive way and even make some further observations about why this is so important in our day. And by we, I mean Wellam does, us, does it for us, but uh, we'll do it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Christ crucified and risen for us. We thank you for Gethsemane, that there in that moment our Lord did willingly submit himself to your will to suffer and to die for us and in our place. It is a marvelous thing to consider. Uh, God, we, we look at Adam and we see how he failed to do this in his own garden. Uh, and we look at our own lives and see how we fail to do this in our fallen condition. We so often chase after our sinful pleasures and go after our appetites that are contrary to you. But Christ, our Lord and Savior, submitted himself perfectly and truly, truly always. And we thank you for his obedience. We thank you for his active obedience, that he obeyed you always. We thank, thank you for his passive obedience, that he suffered for us and in our place. We thank you for his humiliation and for his exaltation. Our hope is in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.